a couple weeks ago, um, I was talking about um, these the three sort of primary types of exploitation by race, by gender, by class, and talked a bit about um, the way that women's work um, came to be reconfigured dramatically with the advent of modernity. And that's sort of where I'm gonna resume the story today. So, Jen, uh, so in um, European and Euro-American societies, uh, there was this pretty common understanding, which extended uh, broadly around the world, uh, which was that uh, the best way to understand gender was through space. Um, the best way to understand gender or to categorize gender was through space, that um, essentially there was women's space and men's space. Men's space was outside, women's space was inside. And when I talked about uh, indigenous societies uh, last episode that um, had more egalitarian social contracts, the typical way they achieved that was enlarging inside versus outside. So in Puebloan society, um, the outside was the temple and the hunting grounds that uh, inside included all of the fields, all of the dwellings, all of the buildings uh, that were shared uh, in these urban, in these uh, village agglomeration structures. And same thing with uh, Iroquoian people, the longhouse tradition. You make the longhouse bigger and you stick all of the activities inside it other than war. And um, this is a way of achieving a degree of gender equality. So if we can imagine what's happened, so we can imagine what's happened to the place of women over the past 400 years, a way to look at it is that outside got bigger and bigger and bigger at the expense of inside, which got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was so small, women popped out of it into the outside to a certain degree. And that that's, uh, uh, that's why we see um, very different accommodations being considered or made in efforts to achieve gender equality. Uh, the idea of degendering the outside uh, is not a tactic that has traditionally been used by other civilizations. So if we think about this sort of, this, uh, this slow evolution from the 15th and uh, 16th centuries, uh, things that left women's purview. Um, the um, management, the financial management of property that she brought into a marriage. Uh, the management of workers who um, were part of the shared inside productive enterprise with her and uh, uh, the man she nominally shared it with. So in this way, women uh, managed and fed apprentices, farm workers, people like that. Um, so if, and the thing is that almost all economic production 
um, was inside. So manufacturing took place in large um, quasi-domestic spaces. Um, production of uh, most food took place uh, inside the walls of farms. Uh, and these were places where women, even if they did not have equal power, had significant power to make decisions. Um, and so one of the consequences then of the rise of the modern factory and its replacement of the manufactory uh, was that um, its workers could only sustain very small domestic spaces, little apartments and tenements. Um, and uh, this was clearly not an inside space. Uh, workers in the factories were overwhelmingly male. Women who worked there were, it was the same as being a market woman or something or a sex worker. You were a profoundly non-respectable person if you were working inside a place like this. And so, and we see similar things with the rise of coal mining, increases in precious metals mining. The mines are another place, totally gendered male, way outside domestic space. And the domestic spaces of the working class people um, are tiny, um, they're minute. Now, similar things are happening at higher levels in society. Uh, so there's this real decline in the power that women have in new bourgeois households compared to the power they would have had in aristocratic households. Um, the, uh, and so, you know, we see Jane Austen's novels as showing here are women who are at a high level of um, uh, class privilege um, and uh, they're powerless over almost everything in their lives. Uh, they control almost nothing. And this becomes associated with respectability. Because of the bourgeoisie's greater taste for having idle women, um, this comes to be a thing that poorer people then aspire to. So one of the ways that the economic pro productivity of the American South took a hit, even though there was no land reform, was that um, one of the first things that black men who had left slavery would try to do would be to have a wife who did not have to go into the fields. Uh, she might have to mend some clothes, she might have to do the cooking, but the point was to show that uh, so black men, especially in America, went to extraordinary lengths financially in order to have a wife whose labor was not taking place outside. Uh, and um, it's, uh, but of course, this aspiration for idleness hits productivity. All those female slaves leaving the fields, um, all of these, um, all of these women whose labor is now trapped inside little Victorian tenements. Uh, there's, as wages are falling at this time, as people's buying power is actually declining, uh, 
there's um, there's tremendous pressure for um, for women to find some way back into the labor force, and that pressure is no more acutely felt on the part of women who lead um, powerless lives doing uh, repetitive domestic labor. And it's in this context that we see the emergence of the modern feminist movement uh, taking place about two generations after industrialization. So the coal-fired industrialization really gets going in the 1790s after the discovery of the steam engine in the 1780s. It's the 1840s when we see um, modern uh, kinds of feminist formations. Uh, feminism, surprisingly, again, to uh, something Marxists might have wanted to watch out for at the time, um, the wave of European feminism really begins later than it does in the United States. The United States um, has some highly distinctive features that create feminist activist organizations much, much earlier than they come into being in Europe, even though the great intellectuals of feminism, we still think of Mary Shelley and the like, of uh, uh, these are European women who are steeped in a much more sophisticated European literary tradition. The reason we see this in America has to do with um, a whole bunch of demographically unique things about the United States and Canada at this time. Uh, virgin soil epidemics had cleared the continent faster than uh, European settlers could move in to exploit native labor. And that means that for the first time, a model had to be generated um, for physically colonizing land using essentially only European immigrant labor. Uh, you could use slaves in the cotton belt in the south, but for the most part you're using free labor and you're short of free labor. Um, so a system is developed. So one of the features is that America and Canada do make it a priority to find groups of people who believe in collective land holding, uh, whether they're existing indigenous groups or foreign religious cults or something in between, and to drive those groups before them across the continent to break the land because um, the free market is not good at breaking land, especially. Uh, not good at digging all those ditches, building all those roads. So um, we had this push into this territory. People are given free land by the government. They settle on it. And other than um, a trust, a land trust, that's created to pay for a one-room schoolhouse, there's no real social or... Uh, institutional infrastructure in these new communities to the extent that they're communities at all. Uh, Americans really come to believe that um, uh, the way to solve this is with religion. And so nonprofit organizations in the Eastern US fund 
the American Bible Society, the American Tract Society, and the circuit rider system, where evangelical ministers are sent into the hinterland to sort of get a church put up, get society going, not on the government's tab, but from uh, wealthy donors in the American East. Um, the idea, as all this is being done, is these are male-headed uh, communities. Uh, not everybody out there is married. And it's found that it's very hard to lay down permanent religious infrastructure. It's very hard to get men to go to church except to meet women. Uh, and this reaches... And this becomes proven beyond all doubt during the California Gold Rush, which is, of course, the greatest sausage fest of all time. 98% uh, of California's 250,000 immigrants were male. Um, and, of course, you don't find... And so the circuit riders go out, the Methodists go out, and they find... Uh, men really, really not going to church. The most benign thing they appear to be doing is converting to Buddhism. But, like, sodomy is way ahead of Buddhism uh, in terms of uh, what people are getting up to. And um, there's this horrible epiphany that ricochets through American religion, which is women are civilization. It's totally contrary to the theology they've been building up until that moment, but it's irrefutable that men are impossible to civilize without there being women they're trying to please. And what this does is it makes a kind of intuitive maternal feminism mainstream pretty much overnight. Between 1848 and 1860, a consensus develops in the United States that understands women to be indispensable to civilization. Um, and these women create all over the American West um, things called rescue homes, female-run social service organizations, funded through the church. Women now constitute about two-thirds of church congregations, although their, minister, their ministers speak for them, but often what the minister is saying is the voice of the people paying him, who are the women in the pews. So we start finding a lot of evangelical men some of them, of course, stick to their guns and put forward a traditional patriarchal Christianity. But there are all kinds of men who are starting to say things that their female parishioners overwhelmingly believe. Like, liquor is really dangerous. Um, when men drink, they do terrible things we should really try and get their liquor away from them. Now today we understand this for what it was, which is a um, really the temperance movement is the first movement that challenges male domestic violence. 
So when we look at this first wave of feminism coming into being in the second half of the 19th century in America, we have to remember that um, this is a feminism that's concerned about women's work. Their first priority, for instance, is um, uh, creating viable career alternatives for sex workers. That's their number one priority in their rescue homes. So they're interested in work. They already have an analysis, flawed or incomplete as it is, of men's violence as being an important part of patriarchy. Um, and so we often focus on questions of women's suffrage, which really comes second here. America had been experimenting with limited women's suffrage since the 1780s. And because they had had it in mostly in New Jersey for a while, it wasn't viewed as the kind of panacea it was in Europe. It was viewed much more as part of a suite of different things. So, the, so there is a women's movement comprising multiple organizations with substantial institutional church support um, by the last quarter of the 19th century. And one of the things that this permits is the feminization of new jobs. So um, in the, uh, as I was saying, uh, I think last week, uh, one of the things about teaching, school teaching, was it was a job that was considered to be one that only men were qualified to do at the beginning of the 1800s. Um, it took uh, a lot of physical strength and violent coercion to um, keep students in the classroom against their will to force them to learn things against their will. Um, and, uh, you know, these are strapping young kids who are helping run the farm. These are strong, strong kids, a lot of them in schools. And, um, of course, and as I, as I said last week, there was a whole pedagogical tradition of teaching coming out of the British Isles that was based on high levels of physical violence against students that we could trace a genealogy all the way back to um, uh, classical Greece to see. And so it would have been unthinkable at the beginning of the 19th century for women to take these jobs. However, by the 1870s, the labor shortage for teachers is so extreme, um, you can't get a teacher on indigenous reservation in the US, that's ridiculous. You can't get one in a lot of towns uh, of a decent size. Uh, local school trusts are competing with each other to try and attract teachers. And so the idea that if you mixed the classroom and put girls in it, the girls in the class would limit the violence of the boys. You could then put a woman at the front of the room. And this worked like a fucking charm. Uh, to switch sides of the Atlantic, um, there's a different way that uh, we see women um, entering the workforce. And it's a little, it, there's less of the teaching, a little bit more of that rescue home spirit from the US. Only the first place we really see the rescue home spirit brought to bear is 
the extraordinary volunteer efforts of Florence Nightingale during the Crimean War, the invention of nursing, due to, again, a terrible labor shortage when it came to men qualified to do modern battlefield medicine. Uh, those men needed backup. And the interests of British imperialism were such that, um, that nursing could become a thing. Once, once nurse became a profession, we really see this as the first of the caring professions. And, um, it, uh, and it branches very quickly towards things like public health nurses, which begin to grow up on both sides of the Atlantic. These are our proto-social workers. Uh, they live in poor communities and they try to ameliorate um, population level health problems uh, through a variety of measures. Uh, free vaccinations for kids, campaigning for water chlorination, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the things to track here is that we see an expansion in women's economic power in many ways either concurrent with or preceding new political demands by women becoming mainstream. That um, the sense of entitlement through labor power really undergirds these movements. And we see it's the teachers and the nurses and the women who have already attained a degree of financial independence who are most able to imagine a degree of political equality and stand at the forefront of feminist movements. Uh, feminist movements from the beginning seek to make common cause and succeed in making common cause with movements that have similar agendas. So the Anti-Lynching League in, in uh, the United States led by a woman who came up through the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So she starts in an anti-domestic violence crusade, realizes that there's this whole upsetting racial discourse around the violence that white men can perpetrate, and it's white women who end up uh, really as the spokesperson on both sides of the lynching debate in the United States. Southern conservative white women uh, being pro-lynching and um, women who've come up through this first wave of feminism uh, creating these national anti-lynching campaigns. So uh, similarly in Europe, we see very early on um, common cause between women and labor parties. Uh, and so there is a story about first wave feminists being prim proper church ladies. I would never suggest that those were not a, a big part of the story that, you know, who were members of the Sierra Club and the Republican Party and all those problematic things. But I think to, to a, but I think it's a mistake to say, well, that was feminism. Because in many ways, those respectability-seeking church ladies 
were not in any way the leading edge of the feminist movement. The leading edge of the feminist movement was campaigning against lynching, campaigning for voting rights, uh, joining into, um, uh, into labor parties in Europe. Um, it's just that we forget how mainstream certain kinds of female activism became in the late 19th century. That um, there was a whole spectrum of women's political activity that was rich um, and um, had tremendous participation prior to the dual victories at the end of the First World War for prohibition and women's suffrage. These things being largely inseparable demands. So, uh, We really see then the zenith of women's political power in the first decade after gaining voting rights. Um, lots of female candidates are elected. Uh, women are entered in all the uh, events in the Olympic Games. Um, and uh, so we see, in fact, in the 1910s um, and 20s, uh, women enjoying more representation and rights than they'll see themselves enjoying again for generations. Uh, and it's um, and it's no coincidence that in the 1920s, when we see when there is no plan after the First World War to pull women out of work and replace them with the returning soldiers, Instead, we have political upheaval caused by all these unemployed soldiers that nearly, um, that, cause, uh, that nearly cause the fall of a number of governments, and of course does cause the fall of the Russian government. So there's no demobilization strategy, and that is dangerous for society, but it's good for women. It means that women hold on to the white-collar jobs that they got during... Um, the uh, First World War. It's where we see the gender of secretary flip is in the 1920s. Um, that women become associated with all kinds of administrative employment, even as they're bounced out of, you know, jobs that use the body or very high status jobs. So there's this upward trajectory uh, we can see in the rights and opportunities enjoyed by women until the Great Depression. And many people mark the Great Depression as the end, both of these gains and of what we call the first wave feminist movement. Uh, the first wave feminist movement's achievements are extraordinary uh, in terms of employment, civil rights, uh, etc. in just a few decades. However, with a glut of employment during the 1930s, um, we see a real decline in what women can uh, in what women can do. In the Olympic movement, uh, it's decided that many of the events in which women were first allowed to compete are too hard on the female body and. Uh, those races cease being run. So 
this comes with a consciousness, a cultural consciousness that comes to believe women as physically and intellectually feeble in the way they weren't thought a decade before. Uh, a broad sort of cultural consensus. And when the economy shrinks, uh, one of, the, um, one, one of the, the life raft you hold on to is the family unit. And so the patriarchal family unit, in the absence of any significant welfare state during the Great Depression, ends up doing a lot of the microcredit and um, um, elder care and blah, blah, blah that the state will later do. Um, these, uh, looking after people, providing unlicensed medical care, uh, looking after kids, these are things that Titi um, Bhattacharya uh, and others refer to as um, social reproductive labor, where uh, during the uh, 1930s, uh, more women lose their jobs than men, and um, women find themselves in um, lives much more bounded by the patriarchal family structures in which they grew up. Uh, and this losing streak mostly continues um, for some time, particularly because of World War II demobilization. Uh, during the Second World War, women do gain uh, work opportunities, uh, doing uh, new kinds of industrial work to support the war effort, doing more of the white-collar work. But unlike the First World War, governments are ready. And there is a whole system of pulling women out of the labor force and place and making their work primarily that of social reproduction. And of course, it's one of the effects of the downward distribution of money to the working class. Working class men returning from Europe wish to have old school respectable families and respectability points further back in the past for the working class than it does for the bourgeoisie. But the bourgeoisie are also interested in these more conservative gender dynamics. And we move into this hell that Betty Friedan describes of these women stuck in houses, one-car families at the end of cul-de-sacs, in new developments where there are no stores, where there are no sidewalks, um, where people, where women are very much trapped. And uh, this leads to men being absorbed back into the labor force very well in um, Europe, the United States. And uh, it's not until the crescendo of the counterculture movements of the 1960s that we really see second wave feminism uh, fully manifest. One of the interesting things that distinguishes second wave feminism sharply from the first wave, and I, I'm not a fan of the maternal versus non-maternal feminism thing. I think that both feminisms play to a lot of gendered cliches while they subvert other gendered cliches. 
But uh, one of the things that's interesting about second wave feminism is that um, so many mo of, the, of its leaders are women who've come out of other movements women who have come out of the anti-war movement, who've come out of racial justice movements. So there's already what we might think of as a Euro-American movement culture, uh, one that isn't just limited to uh, the North Atlantic, but that we see all through um, Latin America as well in uh, its great cities, that there's a that there's an increasingly complex set of allied pushes for liberation on the part of <clears throat> the uh, um, on the part of a pretty diverse bunch. Uh, in the 1970s, my grandmother became uh, very active in the feminist movement uh, in uh, in Vancouver. And um, she had been uh, a very successful uh, manager of a law office in the 1920s. She became a, a legal secretary when she was 16 and uh, was in a pretty senior position uh, by the time the Great Depression hit. Um, she had led a life of a, uh, of a respected single urban woman and all that had been taken away. And she had been consigned to tasks um, that she was bad at and hated. My grandmother was a terrible, terrible cook. Uh, and uh, similarly, these other sort of social reproduction labor things were not her speed. Um, so the, uh, and. She was not alone. Many of the women who provided the most consistent labor for the second wave were women who could remember the first wave, um, who prized regaining freedoms like the ability to be compensated in divorce or um, to um, have one's own credit card, uh, regaining these abilities had a zest to it that gaining them for the first time would not have had. The idea that something had been taken away from you and you never thought you would get it back. Um, so I think it's, so the second wave feminist movement, I think is a lot more variegated than people credit. Um, that uh, it, uh, and studies have shown that um, there, there are a lot of myths about it that um, really don't hold up. And another is the lack of its diversity. Um, the second wave feminist movement and its vestiges have um, uh, generally been highly racially diverse. Um, and that's often because the feminist movement is the second, as the second movement a woman joins rather than the first that um, uh, that in a way the feminist movement was a meta problem, was dealing with a meta problem. Women would join peace organizations, racial justice organizations, and they would find that the structures of gender-based oppression would be perfectly intact in those organizations. So often they would enter into feminist organizations 
with a highly sophisticated sense of the contradictions and interlocking aspects of different forms of identity-based oppression. The second wave, of course, had a material drive. Um, there's a very clear material drive for the second wave. It has to do with the, it was caused by the liberalization of divorce law. And uh, it produced the 1970s divorce wave in Western Europe and North America. That wave produced a large number of female-headed households. And it became crucial that if the state wasn't going to support those households, um, affirmative action, equal pay for work of equal value, better minimum wage legislation, um, more asset transfers during divorce. All of these things were part of a package that allowed European and American welfare states to not expand in response to the divorce wave by making sure that family systems could become more robust and could manage the financial kit of the divorce wave without the government handing out money. And that meant instead giving women greater rights to their employer's money and greater rights to their um, uh, former partner's money or even their current partner's money. So um, there is a material force that we sometimes underestimate um, there is the meta problem of all of these sort of left and new left organizations. It is certainly true that countercultural and new left dissidents were overrepresented in the leadership of the second wave feminist movement. That um, a movement is never fully reflect or never fully reflects its rank and file. But uh, the leadership of the second wave tended to be younger, better educated, and less concerned with uh, material equality and more concerned with discourse and political equality. <clears throat> now, for all kinds of reasons, some traps set by the state, some traps set by the right, some just the nature of left politics, some the specific flaws of the counterculture and new left and bad ideas that are endogenous to those things. The 1980s collapse of second wave feminism is paralleled in most of the causes of the 70s and 80s, uh, or 60s and 70s, collapsing. It's paralleled in, in, um, it's paralleled in setbacks for racial justice, it's paralleled in setbacks for integration projects, for housing, all kinds of things. There's a widespread movement failure and movement crisis in the 80s that we see across the political left, and we see commensurately the rise of a new conservatism uh, and figures like Ronald Reagan and um, Jerry Falwell 
What's interesting here is that some of the faces, not many, but some of the faces associated with this new right are from a faction of the leadership of the second wave feminist movement. Now, some of those people are people who recant the whole feminist deal. Um, people like Phyllis Shafley or the leaders of real women in Canada, women who decide that um, the feminist movement has gone the wrong direction. Uh, but other, other figures that we begin to see in the rank and file of the religious right are committed feminists who have become concerned uh, 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 who see the discourse about female bodies um, and the violence against women as the most central aspect of the struggle. Uh, these, um, uh, these feminists, the anti-porn feminists, as they come to be known, um, see sex work as inherently oppressive. Um, they often, like Andrea Dworkin, see marriage as inherently oppressive. And they see um, not just the work that goes into the production of pornography, but the consumption of pornography as being central to men's objectification of and violence towards women. Uh, and this is, of course, borne out in the extreme physical discomfort and high levels of violence the workers in those industries experience, so that one might make the case that even if um, pornography and prostitution don't have the deleterious social effects they do, it's indisputable that workers in those fields are in constant physical danger experience high levels of physical abuse, and that this is an evil that should be combated. Uh, on the opposite side, um, we see other feminists arguing that um, there are new ways that pornography can be made that are not inherently oppressive or objectifying. Um, we see... Um, uh, and uh, we see similarly this idea of, well, if we, uh, if we want sex workers to be safer, um, we should um, uh, consider the state legalizing sex work and regulating sex work as it used to until the 19th century or early 20th. So um, this, uh, or in the case of Mexico, um, up until the 1950s. So with all that, um, um, and this then became the, a primary site of um, conflict within the feminist movement, significantly stoked by pimps and pornographers on one side, and... Um, the Christian right on the other. Uh, and this became 
highly destructive feminist organizations um, became profoundly split. These fights over sex work uh, prevented other questions from being raised. This was not a thing that people could put down. Uh, and so instead, more and more energy of the feminist movement uh, comes to be turned inward in these struggles, which are increasingly supported by groups that are actually outside the feminist movement. Now, in Vancouver, um, it's important to note the, um, uh, that the marginalization of anti-porn feminists uh, was also, um, it played out in a very local way. Uh, the Squamish Five, uh, who um, ultimately went to jail for um, attempting to blow up a uh, chemical facility, uh, their most successful campaign was as the Women's Feminist Fire Brigade in Vancouver, um, where they repeatedly firebombed um, all of the Jim Pattison porn stores, and especially Red Hot Video, which they uh, firebombed on more than one occasion. Uh, and um, there, the dis and so when people condemned the violence of the Squamish Five, often this was code for also condemning their views on, um, as sex work abolitionists and as gender abolitionists and um, as, uh, as opponents of, um, uh, of the sex trade industry. So that's, um, uh, that conflict alienated many feminists and many feminists found themselves ultimately primarily affiliated with their allies in um, either the sex industry or the Christian right, and less so with the collapsing feminist organizations. And generally, most feminist organizations, the pro-porn feminists won, and there are some important reasons for that. Uh, in Vancouver, again, there's a good example of why the pro-porn feminists won. Um, they collaborated closely um, with uh, gay and lesbian liberation movements um, that had their own interests in terms of what kind of pornography was legal. So Little Sisters Bookstore was the primary legal entity that uh, faced down the cops and faced down customs and faced down all these obscenity investigations. Um, because they weren't merely, um, because here you had lesbian pornography that was largely being paid for through the sale of pornography for gay men and a store that engaged in advocacy uh, both uh, for feminism and uh, for um, gay liberation. So, um, and that's not an atypical story. Um, the anti-porn feminists uh, often uh, ended up focused on service delivery um, because anti-porn feminists were much more focused on the labor exploitation and physical insecurity of women. They much more significantly prioritized 
running women's shelters, transition housing, and anti-male violence protests. And so this pro versus anti-porn feminism split was retained not through acrimonious debate, but through basic principles of attraction to what kind of organization do I wanna join as a feminist? What are the things that I see as most offensive about the society in which I live? Uh, many uh, feminists like my friend Lisa Armato simply dropped out of the movement because of the split um, that uh, uh, she had been, uh, you know, she'd been part of a Dworkinite commune, uh, the whole deal. And um, it was just such a tragedy uh, the way women's unity had been broken in the split and who everybody had ended up sort of serving or having to work with, you know, that even the most sort of feminist transition house might have to make a deal with the Salvation Army at a certain point uh, because of caring about certain very basic material things. Um, this made, um, uh, by not merely polarizing, but essentially pulling in opposite directions in rendering ambivalent the feminist movement, um, huge amounts of power and political relevance were drained out of it. Now, people often talk about how in the 1990s there was something called third wave feminism. Third wave feminism is a movement, is a self-declared movement uh, that was overwhelmingly centered in universities, um, typically um, led by women who had been part of, uh, not necessarily a big part of, but a part of the uh, pro-porn faction mostly in the second wave. Um, one of the many, what Kimberly Crenshaw was uh, classed as before she was the head of her own philosophy of intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw is a great example of a third wave feminist in every sense. Um, Crenshaw conducted a bunch of dubious studies of women's shelters, um, which she found to be corrupt and insufficiently diverse. Um, there was a considerable rewriting of the history of the feminist movement by third wave feminists to suggest that the first and second wave had had no class analysis and did not care about race and were basically uh, white supremacist in character. Um, because a lot of these scholars were associated with what we call the postmodern turn and new disciplines like cultural history, um, there's very little ethnographic evidence to back up their re-narration of what the first and second waves were their condemnation of those waves and their assertion that they were the first part of feminism to recognize race and class as significant has been a highly effective power play. Many young feminists today believe that um, 
that um, feminism only became inclusive of people of color in the 1990s. It's a very common uh, myth. Um, and what that has served is third wave feminism has not had great material successes. It does, it's not a movement that people strongly identify with on the street. It's unclear what a third wave feminist organization even is often. Um, it remains university centered and the first and second waves of feminism presided over massive increases in women's rights, wages, etc. Third wave feminism, if it exists, has presided over a decline in women's wages, women's assets, women's rights, etc. It has presided over a steady decline annually in abortion rights or uh, and um, and uh, and this slow trajectory of the wage gap widening further. I therefore would I would provocatively suggest that we await third wave feminism, or we might be at the beginnings of third wave feminism, and the the thing calling itself third wave feminism is actually part of what feminists call the backlash the set of social movements that attacked feminism in the 1980s and 90s and noughts. That, um, uh, that third wave feminism has produced negative results and it has condemned in fairly blanket ways organizations and organizing theories and politics that did produce results. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that anyone who says they're a third-wave feminist is lying, but I do think that, um, especially given some of the things that third-wave, the way that third-wave feminists tend strongly to identify with identitarian causes today, is further evidence to me that this is part of the backlash, that um, there was just some very clever nomenclature going on as a movement took a conservative turn and became more in favor of permanent gender difference uh, and more comfortable with um, declining uh, uh, women's representation and well-paying work compensated by increasing representation of women at the very, very highest elite levels in society. The focus on affirmative action uh, going from the low and middle wage worker to the symbolic political appointee or the CEO is another thing that might indicate that the third wave is part of this backlash. I would say that um, signs of an emerging third wave, um, uh, I really found it noticeable in the trade union leaders around the Sanders movement. Um, I found that um, uh, when, um, you know, the head of the flight attendant, the new head of the flight attendants union, people like that, that you see more of the ingredients of when um, of of when feminism is successful, 
I mean, and I think that that it makes sense that it's in um, highly feminized occupations um, that we see femi strong feminist spoke spokespeople moving up through the labor movement. It's so unsettling, of course, as a man to imagine that people will stop making porn for you. That that's a, that's a pretty unsettling thing. Um, so it's hard for me to say with any sincerity that I'm on the Dworkin side in the split, but it does seem to me that if, that if, um, that the primary, the, the central things that oppress women now that we've seen women's suffrage for as long as we have is that, um, that, um, economic subordination and physical violence vastly outstrip these other factors that make women an oppressed class. That um, if you're not focusing on one of those, it seems like you're on a tangent, you're on some kind of errand. And um, I also think that um, the fact that people have had to start doing anti-identitarian organizing um, has um, is producing a much more precise attack on men's violence than, for instance, the Me Too movement, right? That, um, I mean, Me Too was a good episode. It was, it reminded people of the scale but um, I think that uh, I think that we see real analysis um, that talks about that places men's violence at the center when we see feminists debating identitarians, and obviously you you can't see that with just something like Me Too, which goes men's violence is a huge problem. Um, and then I think the really the best intervention I read during Me Too, an example of where I think the, the more feminists are going now, was Mia Kirshner saying, well, actually, the Screen Actors Guild um, could add the following boilerplate to all contracts, and this would remove these instances of assault by about 70%. Um, and it's like, here's what you put in the contract, that a contract is void if it's signed in a hotel room, a contract is void if it's signed in someone's home, um, all these kinds of, like, you know, labor practices thing, because it's going, look, it's not just that these, these men are predatory, there's a system here, and it has to do with whether the ability to withhold wages, the ability to withhold hiring. And uh, so, but when she came out with that intervention, it fell on absolutely deaf ears. Like, I think the only other prominent feminist, you know, to like, to reference it was Sarah Pauly. And I think that's because they're neighbors. Um, so it's a, uh, so yeah, I just, so I, I do see some qualitative differences in the past three years. Thanks, Stuart. Sorry, I was uh, I was cooking before, so I didn't want to turn the microphone on because the fan was very loud. 
I had a sorry, I, I missed who, yeah, yeah. who was the person who suggested that intervention? Uh, Mia Kirshner. I, I don't know if this is a, an appropriate time to bring this up, but you, you mentioned the increasing wage gap. Well, maybe there's two things that jump out. One, I, I sometimes curious if those who would claim to be a part of some sort of third wave feminism, whether they would suggest that they have halted what would have or reduced what would have otherwise been a greater decline when we, when we suggest that they've overseen a decline in some of the progress that's been made from first wave and second wave, if the third wave, if, if we were to go with the idea that there is currently a third wave, if they would suggest that they've sort of reduced what would have otherwise been worse. I think that's sort of one part, which I don't agree with, but I yeah, think yeah. that's one thing that some may suggest. And then maybe I'll come back to the wage gap pieces later, but we'll, maybe we'll start with that one. Well, I think it's, it's very simple. We're not saying that feminism doesn't exist right now or that feminist movements aren't doing stuff. It's that that's not what a wave looks like. A wave goes this way, not that way. Mm. And so it's whether, whether the third wave, I mean, I think the third wave is mainly not so much characterized by bad strategy as lack of personnel and um, increasing marginalization in the discourse. So it's like, well, the second wave lost a lot of people. They lost a lot of momentum. And a wave is about an accretion of people and momentum, hmm. which I don't think the third wave... Well, I think for the people in the third wave who led it, that was their lived experience as managers, as, as, as within what we uh within the commissar class right so they probably this probably was a period of gains for women inside the commissar class within those boundaries and therefore a wave would be consistent with their lived experience even though this was uh, not experienced outside the class so much well you know waves grow but they also eventually crest and crash and we valorize the surfers when the wave is in fact fallen that's a, that's a nice way to put it. But yeah, I mean, that's, that, yes, it's like, well, if this is the crest, what is the crash? Well, the, <laughs> the right. crashes are the surfers wipe out. So, you know, but. But that, I think that, 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 that ties, I was going to say that, 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 uh, that ties in well with the idea when you're seeing some of those, like, for example, the affirmative action or that type of work being targeted more to the senior administration or the one person there, as opposed to the actual workers themselves. So the people who are in that commissar class, et cetera, would see potentially an increase of some other uh, indicators that might suggest that there's some good work going on here. Uh, I, I was just gonna ask, um, I don't know if now's the right time to bring it up, but you, you mentioned the sort of increasing wage gap. Uh, I, for better or for worse, have been listening to and reading a little bit of um, economists like Tom Soil and their thoughts on the wage gap and that the wage gap is not necessarily a difference. It's, it's people who are doing the same work are getting paid the same amount, uh, but it's those who have been out of the labor force or for other reasons, there are some sort of other factors at play beyond necessarily employer discrimination. I was just wondering if you had thoughts on that. Um, well, it's, it depends what you what one means by employer discrimination i mean there are all kinds of factors patriarchy works in so many ways it's systemic in character um so yes obviously the fact that women spend um 
because they're diverted into social reproductive labor more, um, they have longer leaves, uh, less flexibility around overtime, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, and of course that arises from the political choice um, had the second wave lasted longer, there's no question that uh, childcare um, to the levels of the East Bloc would have become part of the mainstream social contract in the West. So we have to remember that it's not an employer choice that's doing that. It's a larger patriarchal social choice to under-resource um, state childcare and then produce a set of conditions. Um, I, for me, I have a very trite story about this. I, um, you know, uh, in my, my brief uh, step-parenting career, um, it was fascinating watching um, these two girls play games. And I realized very quickly that um, uh, boys are taught how to lose at games. Uh, and how that loss is consequential, ephemeral, and final. So you don't, you don't carry out revenge for your loss in a subsequent game. You don't beg or dispute the loss. You don't try and negotiate your way out of the loss. And like, watch it try explaining to these girls how to play Monopoly like a boy. Um, I felt is really the most important feminist work I've done because if this is crucial for male workplace solidarity. Men get promoted slower than women in their 20s. Women in their 20s are another stick patriarchs use to beat young men over the head with in many ways. So young women are promoted faster, they're more fun to look at, there's all, all this stuff going for them at the start of white collar employment. And then they fall back in their 30s and 40s relative to men. And one of the reasons is that when a group of women who are allies, when their ranks get reassigned, their alliance has a high probability of collapse. They're taught not to tolerate losing a competition to an ally uh, and to resent that. When men who are functioning cohorts in a workplace have that experience, solidarity sticks. They've just lost a soccer game. And so one of the things that happens is that the way we raise girls um, makes some... Um, it trains them not to stick together in complex long-term alliances. Uh, and that's a, and that's a, that is a deeply embedded force. Um, and there's everything in between uh, in terms of um, the, uh, uh, in terms of these factors. So I think that um, there's a problem in, uh, in these larger structures. And one of the things we can do in a workplace because of our ability to regulate a workplace is create compensatory labor regimes that produce feedback effects that undermine these larger patriarchal structures. So it's, that, um, it's not so much that... Um, that the workplace is a, uh, 
the workplace is a locus of discrimination. It is a locus of sexual coercion. Um, you know, your rapist is most likely to be your boss. Um, there's uh, apparently they're edging out family members now uh, for adult women anyway. Um, but uh, but really, the workplace is better understood as a site where the larger patriarchy is enacted. But because we live in a capitalist society, it's how everybody gets compensated. It's how everybody gets supported. And so the state, so it becomes necessary for the state to reach in short of socializing the workplace and try and use people's workplaces as a place where it can uh, insert these countervailing forces. So I'm curious as to where some of the social reproduction work that some companies are now at least ostensibly taking on themselves. And so they'll provide you with your dining areas, they'll provide you with your childcare, they'll provide you with all the things that you need so you can continue laboring, uh, how, how that fits in when you've got these large companies that are making ostensible moves in that direction. Yeah, and I mean, it really depends. Uh, there's, it has to do with the relationship with the state and various other things. The provision of food um, as a substitute for uh, paying overtime um, is something we really saw out of the tech industry. There are lots of ways that these things can be enacted exploitively. It's really no, there's no way to really know. I mean, it's scary to think that... Um, you, uh, I mean, it's high stakes to have your child care and your employment status tied directly together. Um, and so, you know, one looks to something like the Swedish model where they, they put daycares in workspaces, but the state intervenes to prevent the coupling of your employment to your child care. And, uh, so it would be a question of like, again, how can the state reach in? All these workplaces are going to do is apply the free market to the social conditions in which they operate. And um, it's only going to be through regulation that they would do anything else.